Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today we're with Michael, our resident Ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, Associate Pastor of Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. I'm Matt Till, Lead Pastor of Restoration Church in the Chicago suburbs. Um, what I'd like to do is turn it over to Michael. Michael, could you just tell us a little bit about um, just the motivation for writing Ephesiology? Like, where did all this kind of come from? And then we can kind of dive in and ask all the questions that you guys might want to ask and um, about the book and anything else. Yeah, good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for pulling this together. This is, uh, like Matt said, this is the first time that we've done this. And I'm thrilled. I, I mean, technology, who would have known a few years ago that we would have been able to gather together in many parts of the United States and, and even around the world uh, to talk about uh, a book. So I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And uh, thankful for you joining us as well. Uh, probably, I, I guess we have to say that we're all thankful that uh, you, you bought the book, hopefully. And uh, so thank you for that. We're, we're, we're uh, very appreciative of that. As, as you, I hope that you have uh, come to learn about me and, and Andrew and Matt is that we love to do theology and community. And so it's so important to us to be able to have a dialogue about these things uh, that are dear to our hearts. And I'm, I'm sure that are dear to yours as well, as, especially as we're trying to figure out um, in, in a time of crisis, what the church is going to look like. Um, so thanks for joining us. And please feel free if there at any point you want to ask a question, uh, just unmute your mic, as Matt said, and, uh, and, and join us. So um, we want this to be collaborative. So why did I write this book? Um, well, if you read in the first couple of chapters, or at least in the in I think in the introduction or maybe the preface, I, I talk about that this was this has been a, literally a thirty year journey. Um, I'm in my thirty first year now of missions uh, that started off as a uh, uh, staff member with a crew uh, back in the 1980s, and uh, which led me to Europe and then Eastern Europe. And uh, ultimately to graduate school and to seminary and uh, and doing my PhD and then teaching at Trinity uh, for a bit and and then doing some things with businesses mission and and uh, international NGOs and and now my current position that we don't talk about uh, because of the nature of the places that we work but. Um, and so it has been a journey uh, of 30 or so years of really trying to understand what was going on in the New Testament. And uh, for some reason, and, and maybe I'm not abnormal about this, but for some reason, the church at Ephesus had always grabbed my attention. Um, I think perhaps it was because of what had become known as the pastoral epistles, First uh, and Second Timothy particularly, uh, because of Timothy's connection with Ephesus and and I, you know, I loved the Apostle Paul and b being a church planter uh, that always wanted to, you know, be that kind of Paul figure to people. And, and yet at the same time, I wanted to be a Timothy. And and uh, so I was just always in, in love, really, with the church in Ephesus. And so um, but it took a long time to put uh, th these things down into writing. Um, and. 
for good reason. I mean, I, it's not like I didn't have other things going on in my life uh, with raising, uh, being married and having three children, one of whom is with us tonight. Um, but it finally came to a point where, you know, we, we felt like that uh, it was time. Um, the world is an interesting place these days. Uh, we're seeing movements all around the world. And, uh, and we see people that are just, you know, gung-ho for movements, church planting movements or disciple-making movements. But we also see the critics of those movements. And so as I'm a part of an organization that uh, has, been a, has taken part in many movements in different parts of the world, I thought it was time for me to uh, begin to reflect more on the New Testament and what we see in terms of movements there. Um, some have criticized those of us who uh, might see movements in the New Testament and say, well, you're reading too much into it. And I get that. And I think that there probably are instances where we'll read too much into what we see in the New Testament and, and, and label it something uh, that maybe it's really not. And what I came to learn through that study is that, yeah, indeed, there are components of a church planting movement, as it's typically defined today, that we don't actually see in the New Testament. But there are components, actually, of New Testament movements that we're not seeing at all in church planting movements or disciple-making movements around the world. And so I wanted to really wrestle with what that was and what those things look like at the time of uh, the New Testament and, and dig a little bit deeper. And uh, that what I discovered were things that, to be honest, surprised me, uh, particularly when in regards to uh, leadership in the movement um, that, that uh, I did not anticipate uh, to, to discover uh, what I did. And we can talk more about that here in a moment. But, but uh, the, the basic structure of uh, ephesiology is, revolves around five uh, building blocks, if you will, or, or perhaps five uh, principles uh, that begin with the launching of the movement, trying to understand how that movement started, uh, what was the passion behind it, what drove those people, what, what was it that took root in the soil of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, that uh, was so impactful that it, it became the indigenous religion of that area? Um, and, and, so, and so it was important to understand how the movement was launched. And then secondly, how it was grounded. And so I spent some time in the epistle of of Paul's to the church in Ephesus. And of course, we know that that's a circular epistle, but there are good arguments for it being uh, directed initially to the church in Ephesus. And, uh, and I wanted to understand, you know, what was it that Paul was teaching that would compel that movement to continue to grow? And, uh, and that's important for us because, you know, I've come to understand the Bible as not just a, a book of, of practices, but really a book of missions. And if we see something of the missionary God in the Bible, then we sure, certainly should see it expressed in the activities of the early disciples and certainly in their writings. And so I, I began to look at the letter uh, of the, to the Ephesians 
and, and, uh, and tried to understand what was it that Paul was doing missiologically in that book? And what was it that he wrote that compelled the movement to continue to grow? Because so often, as, as we um, are aware in our context, uh, particularly in the United States, um, we look at we look at the Bible and it becomes and I use this term frequently in in the text it becomes anthropocentric it becomes about me and you know what is it written in there for me how can I grow how can you know what is God calling me to <clears throat> and what I began to see excuse me in the Apostle Paul was that you know in his writings it was all about God. It was theocentric. It was about who he was, what he was about, and then how we could faithfully join with him on the mission that he uh, is is doing in uniting all things in Christ. And so, the grounding of the movement uh, was a it was the second part of uh, the the components that make up the book. And thirdly, is uh, the leading of the movement. And uh, leadership, we know, is so critical in anything, really. Um, and, uh, and that's the same in the New Testament. Uh, that movement was a special movement led by very special people. Uh, but they're not any more special than you or me, uh, because we're all still a part of that same mission, uh, to unite things, all things in Christ. That mission that, that uh, Paul describes so uh, brilliantly and Ephesians chapter one um, is something that is relevant still for us today. And so how was it that that movement was led? And one of the things that I, that, that really became so striking to me was coming from this idea that Paul was myopically theocentric and his leadership resembled that to such an, to such a degree that really there was only one head of the church and that head was Jesus Christ and everything served him. Everything brought glory to him. And, and it wasn't about a particular position in a ministry. It wasn't about uh, being a bishop or an elder or a deacon. In fact, what I ultimately conclude in the book is that the New Testament style of leadership was flat that they were peers, they were leaders among leaders, those bishops, those early bishops, elders and deacons, and that they had uh, particular functions. And when they functioned well, the church grew phenomenally. But, but at the heart of those leaders was the realization that Christ is ultimately the head of the church and everyone served him. And then I look uh, at the fourth component and, and that being um, multiplying a movement. How was it that these people just simply uh, continued to propagate the gospel? And that what I come to are simply four points that uh, are key in a movement to multiplying. And that is that these movement leaders empowered people to use the gifts that God had given them, inspired them to join in the hardships that they knew was ahead of them, entrusted them to teach faithful people who would teach others to stay on that mission and then to remind them to preach the word in season and out of season. And those are four very important principles if we're going to see a movement uh, in our world today. And then ultimately, uh, the fifth the fifth component 
of uh, this movement in uh, the New Testament was the sustaining of it. And here is just this really remarkable letter that Jesus it writes to the church in Ephesus, and he intervenes in such a uh, important period of time in that church, but in just such a uh, a wonderful way, where he not only admonishes the church to stay on its mission, to stay on her mission, but also encourages the church that she is doing some things that are very good. And, uh, and those are exciting things. I mean, uh, I write about the church staying on mission by having a vibrant apologetics ministry and staying on mission by having a vibrant social justice ministry. And those things come out in that letter that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus. But most importantly, what the church was lacking and what threatens even us today is that we might abandon our first love. And as I look at the entire book of Revelation, it just seems so obvious to me that the first love of those early Christians was the declaration of God's glory to the nations. And over and over again, we see in Revelation, uh, that John, John, who receives this vision, emphasizing that, that uh, one day there will be before the throne of God, every people, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And, uh, and that was what drove uh, those churches. That's what drove the early believers, the declaration of God's glory at whatever cost, uh, so that he would be honored and lifted up as he so rightly deserves. So that's, I mean, that was a lot for my motivation for the book, wasn't it? Let me, let me stop there, Matt, and uh, open it up to some questions well, uh, you- that some might have. Well, if you couldn't tell, this is obviously the culmination of Michael's uh, much of his life work, and um, and we're privileged just to be a part of that journey with him, and um, really being captured by this this notion of ephesiology and uh, this idea of bringing God glory um, to the nations. Um, you know, I think one of the things too, Michael, that's probably going to be on a lot of our minds is, um, and by the way, we want to open this up to questions, uh, just as Michael was saying. So. If you've got a question, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can digitally raise your hand um, and we'll get to you um, uh, using the prompts at, right here in Zoom. Uh, and we'd love to answer your questions too. And one of the other things too is some of the things that we've been wrestling with, you've been hearing on the recent podcasts, and maybe we could talk a little bit about it tonight, is um, just what can we learn from that early first church in light of even modern day events that was taking place right now, even in light of uh, coronavirus and the pandemic and how are we adapting and how are we using and seeing what is happening today and how can we, what can we learn from that early church movement as well to some of the fresh thinking that we're doing as we're processing through ephesiology. Um, so any questions you have for Michael, just based on some of the things that he just shared with us now, um, love to hear from you uh, or even something maybe you've been reading about in the book. We'd love to dialogue a little bit about that with you. Yeah, they, like we were saying, and and please, if somebody has a question, just interject, uh, and we'll we'll pause. But uh, as we're waiting, um, you know, we're in interesting times, aren't we? Uh, with this COVID uh, pandemic, uh, I was in South Asia when it was really beginning to break out here, and uh, people were nervous, and uh, we saw it not only in that country but on the way back. 
that people were concerned about what was happening in our world. And, uh, and, you know, there are many of us that are looking at what's happening as perhaps an opportunity for the church to really think about, uh, you know, have, are, are we still on mission the way that uh, God intends us to be? And that's a challenging question uh, for us. And uh, of course, this has been a part of the question that we've been asking for, gosh, more than a year. Hasn't it been, Matt, Andrew, that we've been doing our podcast now? Or, or just about, yeah, just a little bit more than a year. And really wrestling with, you know, these trends that we're seeing in uh, North America and r- really globally of the shrinking of Christianity. And so I think that there is something uh, there in the New Testament that we can rediscover and, and then even begin to think about, you know, what does this look like today in our contexts? I think that would be a question I would love to hear from you all. And uh, this is me asking you the question. And since everybody's so shy, you all just got put on blast. So um, (laughs) where do you guys feel as Michael talks about God's desire to unite all things in him? And then furthermore, um, this myopic uh, focus on God, this, this myopic theocentric focus um, both that Paul had and oddly, obviously God has, where do you feel uh, the ministries that you are a part of or the communities that you are around? Um, trying to figure out how to answer this so that none of you are going to get in trouble. Um, what are some areas that you hope to see that change towards a myopic theocentric focus in the ministries and the communities that you are a part of? Not all at once. I'm going to answer a question with a question. So Michael had (laughs) (laughs) specifically like an apologetics ministry. When you're trying to engage culture, but also grow a church and grow disciples, what do you guys feel are the essential ministries for a church? Um, Because Michaela, unfortunately, has heard me rant about many unessential ministries in the Western church. Um, so what do you guys sort of think are the essential ministries? And that's for everybody, I mean, you know, for everybody. Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. And of course, we're wrestling with those things, uh, aren't we, in, in the church today? Because um, everything, it seems at times, becomes essential in the church. And uh, uh, yeah, and so we wrestle with that. I, You know, as I look at the New Testament, and uh, and I look at those early believers, it, it just seems to me, and this is funny for me to say this, and I, and I can give a little background of why I say it's funny for me to say this, but um, uh, I, I think the essential ministry of the church is the declaration of the glory of God everywhere we go, with whomever we meet, uh, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that that is uh, the, the essential uh, the ministry. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other ministries uh, that, that revolve around that, if you will. Uh, there are. There certainly are. 
But I think we have to begin, and now in this age of COVID, it's a good time for us to begin to do this, but we have to begin to dissect, really, what is ministry and what is just simply a program that keeps us occupied and and, uh, connected in some way, if you will, to uh, a local church. And, um, and and those are hard questions to ask because you know we have uh, for decades, if if not for centuries, been taught that church is a certain way. There are certain things that are expected in that church because mostly it's become an institution. And I don't mean institution in a bad way. I mean there are good institutions and bad institutions. But because it has become an institution, and you and you think about it, I mean, early on, uh, I mean, this even goes back to the 300s, 400s, and then, of course, going into the era of Constantine and, and the Christianization of the empire. But the church was was uh, was the focal point of a community. Education was done in some churches. Uh, hospitalization was done in some churches. Um, uh, higher education was done. And so it becomes an institution just out of its own existence. I think where where um, we wrestle now with that is that the church has become so institutionalized that it's sufficient for us just to simply plug somebody in to uh, fulfill a responsibility in the institutions that we've created or in the programs that we've created out of a need to sustain those programs more than out of a need for empowering the people that are in those programs to use the gifts that God has given them. And so that, I mean, that might be a little bit of a long winded answer to, uh, or, or at least the beginning of an answer. So I'm going to uh, just kind of tag on that a little bit uh, if I, if I could. And uh, Ellie, I see that you asked a, a similar question. Uh, you were asking about organism versus organization. I think it's a great way to frame that as well too, is Michael's talking about this idea of institutionalization, what, are, what becomes essential even in the essential ministry. One of the things I think that we are always struck by is the simplicity of what we see in the New Testament narratives, especially when we get right away to the first, really the first organization of the church, any sort of assemblance we see starts occurring right there in Acts, right away in Acts 2. And we see that the believers are getting together. And what are they doing? They're eating together, they're praying together, and they're worshiping together and um, taking communion together and then being sent out again back into the world to do the ministry. It was mm-hmm. it was incredibly simple, but yet very, it, sound, it seems pretty organic. We like using that word organic. We don't really see that anywhere in the New Testament, but we see that there's this, this kind of ascend, this real simple semblance of some sort of organization. We see later on, of course, uh, Paul's encouraging Timothy to, to, to find elders and, and trusted um, people to teach and to share the gospel and to teach others in discipleship. But we think that actually that seems to be just the keys and the elements that help make this really replicatable very fast and just really the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Um, And so, um, but how do we strategically continue to reach our neighbors, reach our communities, share the gospel and the good news um, when everything becomes about the local church organization, um, buildings, budgets, um, things like that? Um, we see could potentially actually hinder that that forward motion. There was always this outward look, not always an inward look. And so um seems like there's this this balance. And we hear from other writers we've engaged with, um, 
you know, uh, Alan Hershey's been on the podcast a couple of times and, and Alan would probably say there's, there's gotta be a healthy balance uh, the same thing with, um, Jeff Christopherson, another friend of ours who we've been talking to on the podcast talks about this balance of organism versus organization. Um, but we see a, a very stripped down, very simple, um, you know, gathering of, of the believers in the saints who are literally encouraging one each other in their gifts and for the equipping and the powering the ministry. Um, and so I think that's something that's been really shocking to us and really surprising to us and something we've really been trying to lean into more and more within the concept of ephesiology. Andrew, yeah, you want to chime in? Yeah, I, I was just going to say to Ellie's excellent question. Um, I think one of the things Matt's touching on that has been coming into my mind in regards to all of this is simplicity is not exclusive. Uh, if it's simple, doesn't mean it can't be organized. And it's, it's when that gets flipped and it's when uh, the desire to be organized or then push forward into an organization that becomes premier. And I don't know about any of you all or is what you are seeing in your church or, or your friends' churches um, nearby during the age of COVID, uh, but it is hilarious. Even some of the most missionally, uh, theologically rooted people, the people who are going to talk about mission all day long, even they have been put into a bit of a tizzy when all of their Sunday morning everythings have been just cast out. And, and so it's kind of like, at what point have we sought organization ahead of mission? And how have we mm. kind of built that? And so simplicity doesn't mean no organization. It's just when it gets in the wrong order, I think mm. is what, as of late with COVID observations, that is what I'm seeing both for myself as the guy who plays around with all the organizational structure of my church, as well as my friends' churches. Like it's, it's what I see and it's what I'm feeling. So, so you're saying, Andrew, that it's flipped. I mean, we've placed the organization ahead of the mission. Yes, absolutely. And again, to answer, to answer Brian's excellent question as well, in the same way, Michael, I think what is probably happening is that good ideas are taken beyond a good idea. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like it had a great root. And to answer Brian's question about what works, like what's the most important thing that the Western church does? I mean, as long as you're declaring Jesus and you're raising up disciples, um, then I would almost say it kind of depends on context, what your, what your next thing is going to be. So you can have a great simple idea and sometimes even without even organization, it might fly. Or you can have a great simple idea and have too much organization. Again, as Michael is saying, I'm saying it's, it's flipped. And we've, uh, we've gotten mission out of order uh, with organization. Mm-hmm. Um, organization should feed the mission, not that the other can, way around. Yeah, I, I think that uh, what, I, what I'm seeing is, um, and maybe I'll just say it this way, I've been thinking in the categories of form and function. And as, as we've been trying to uh, wrestle with what's going on here in COVID-19, I think what we've realized is we, we wanted to be on mission. We wanted to be about the glory of God, but what we did was we boxed it into a certain form rather than getting at the principle or the function of the thing. Um, and, and now, you know, we're throwing up our hands. We don't know what to do without our Sunday morning service. When the, the mm-hmm. function uh, of the thing is still the same, it's just taking on a different form now. And so what I'm trying to categorically think 
when I'm talking with pastors is how do we how do we help equip our leaders and our people to think in terms of function and how can we accomplish the same function uh, in different forms? I think, uh, Michael, what you said earlier is really important. How do we how do we flatten the structure? How do we help? uh, How do we help everyone be really on mission, be the priesthood of the believers? Um, and, and so those are the things that I'm, I'm wrestling with right now as well. But I think it's just a really good conversation because uh, this is a, a really important time, in my view, um, as far as shifting our focus. Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we help help guys and even even myself? I'm thinking in terms of myself and my leadership. How do I help us quit trying to build the structure um, and, and really empower the people instead? And, yeah. and, it, and it's really it's a really slippery slope, right? Because we, we put the structure there so that we can equip the people. But what happens is then all of a sudden our people are serving the structure rather than the structure serving to build up the people. Yeah. And we got to be really wise in how we yeah. approach that. You know, that's such a good word, Andrew. I, I appreciate that at, uh, a lot. Uh, and I think you're right. I, and I love how you put it, form and function. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. So thanks for that input. You, you know, I hope uh, over the you know the course of of you reading the book and and uh, even listening to the podcasts that you would have heard us say that we're not really interested in methods and strategy. Uh, we're interested in principle, and um, it, it's those methods and strategies that you know once somebody develops them. Then everybody's kind of grabbing after them and saying, "I want to do this. I want to do this too." And we were talking a couple of weeks ago about, you know, in the 1980s when when uh, Rick Warren started Saddleback, he was very missiologically minded. I mean, if you read his first book, The Purpose Driven Church, you'll see that he was dialed in to understanding the people that he was engaging, and what came out of that was uh, form and the form worked in Southern California. And then what happens in church planting in the eighties and going into the nineties. And then, I mean, when we were in Romania overseas, we were seeing this as well, that everybody was trying to replicate that form without understanding the function, without doing the hard work of what I've called missiological theology, that understanding in a deep way What's going on in the culture? What is it that God's doing? And how do we connect Jesus's story to the story of that culture? And until we get to that point, Brian, I think this goes back to that essential ministry of the church. Um, Until we get to the point where we're asking that question about how does Jesus's story connect with the stories of the people where I am, then uh, we're going to miss we're going to miss something. So I also want to get in uh, here too. Um, this is a great conversation we're having, by the way, everyone. So thank you. And um, uh, I wanted to Josiah, who's also joining us here. Um, he's working in a uh, another uh, a part of the world, and uh, he just w- made a comment in the chat here that says, "I love the phrasing of myopic theocentric uh, theocentrism. It seems as if uh, this were more of our collective experience and focus. Less ministry would have." to be programmed because mm-hmm. we would be in tune with each other through the head Christ. Wow. Right. Yeah. We have been learning a bit about how complex systems have simple rules or patterns. The one, the one and others that Paul describes seem like patterns that can repeat across groups and generations and that organize a complex multiplying system. Uh, 
Josiah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think is really the heartbeat, I think, of what we're this conversation's been about is what are those principles, what are those essentials? Um, and then it kind of creates the system around it when they're just easy replicatable pieces that seem to work. Um, you know, um, so Mike, Michael, were you yeah. gonna say something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm like going, yeah, Josiah, <laughs> this is great. This is you're you're uh spot on. I I mean that excites me. Uh this myopic theocentrism is what drove Paul and those early believers. And it drove them on this single mission of declaring God's glory. And, uh, the, and I the, love the seeing Michael brilliance. on fire, by the way. Yeah. No, nothing lights him up more than this. Keep going. The, <laughs> the, the brilliance of that in terms of uh, how that movement grew was that everybody knew they were on this mission together. And, and there was nothing that was going, now I, I say this, there was nothing that was going to uh, disunify them. We know that disunity comes. I mean, you think about the issues in the church in Corinth, for example, uh, uh, Ephesus wasn't immune to issues either. There were things that threatened that unity. But when, when the church knew that it had this single mission, then that was compelling them. And, uh, and that's what caused their growth. And so that, I, Josiah, thank you. That's so encouraging for me to hear um, of, of how important you think this myopic theocentrism is. Uh, what, what are the questions or other thoughts that you guys have had? Just um, maybe if you had a chance to engage in the book or some other things that you've been uh, processing through, uh, we'd love to continue to dialogue. Brian, do you feel like your your conversation was a good conversation starter? Do you feel like uh, it was sufficiently answered? Yeah, absolutely. One of the um, so <laughs> I've been listening. I've been listening to quite a few of the podcasts, and I kind of want to stir the, the pot a little bit because one of the things that has always thank you finally. <laughs> um, it's an issue that, as I've listened to the physiology podcast, it's more of sort of a curiosity it it seems like at some point does a church become too large to, and, and i know you resist the, the term model but I'm, I'm just sort of using it does a church become almost too big to use the ephesiology model like i feel like in in the united states it's all about church growth um at one point i was a a pastoral intern for the pca and i used to go to the session meetings and the presbytery meetings. And one of the pastors once joked with me that it's all about butts and bucks. In other words, how much money are you bringing in and how many people are you bringing in? And I feel like if ephesiology is successful, does it lead to then a church, not the church, but a church becoming too big? Is that question sort of making sense? Like, is there a tipping point? Um, I don't know. I may not be phrasing it right, but you're phrasing it perfectly. So the retorted question then needs to be, what is the mission of the church? Right. Because, and this is the total cop-out answer. I am always good for a cheater answer, Brian. What I want to desperately say is if the church is really about the mission that God has given us, if we are embarking on all that he has called us to, if we are properly working within the gifts that he has given us, and we are gathering to the glory of his name, not consumerism, but that theocentric focus. If we are doing it 
and that is still happening, then great. But what have we seen? Typically, we've seen a, a mission drift when churches do get to be a certain size. So I think it's a, it's a trick question because the question needs to be, has the church stayed, no matter the size, has the church stayed focused on its mission? Because you can get mission drift with a church of 12 people and you can get mission drift of a church of 12,000. Mm-hmm. I also, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm also hearing you uh, ask a question is like at some point, like how, if we're kind of suggesting um, the idea of how do we lose our ways, right? Um, it's, it's more about what does, what is it about a physiology that per, potentially might be different than anything else than maybe what you've engaged with? Is that kind of your, a more crass way of asking the same question? Yeah. And I, and I don't, I don't think it's a, a, a crass way at all. I think it's, I think it goes back to the question of how do we stay on mission and sort of back to my first question is what are sort of the essential ministries? Yeah. Um, because I think what both of you guys have said I've seen in the churches, as the church gets larger, then, um, and I'm, you know, we want a ministry for this specialty. We want a ministry for this one. We want a ministry for that one. And I think the church becomes very church focused and it, it no longer becomes evangelistically focused. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, no, I, th- I think you're right, Brian. I think, and, and again, we go back and so, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way. Um, and, and I don't want to be reductionistic either, but, but d- to be perfectly honest, this is not complicated. Right. It, it, I, I mean, it's not complicated. The, the early mission of the church, they knew it. They knew what it was. I mean, Jesus was clear. Uh, as you're going or however you want to interpret that and make disciples. And it really is that simple. Now we've complicated it because of what you're talking about. We've added so much to what it means to make a disciple. Well, we need to have a children's program. We need to have youth programs. We need to have this program or that program. Um, and, uh, and it's gotten out of hand in some way because we have to raise the question, are we really making disciples now? Because if we were, you would think that you would see the church growing in North America. And the fact is, is that we're not. And, um, and so we have to wrestle with that then. If we're not growing and we continue to do the same things, isn't that what they call the definition of insanity? Uh, we're doing the same things, expecting different results. Uh, one of our Facebook people, I was just on here and, and uh, this is so wild to think that we're in two places at the same time, but uh, one of our Facebook. Uh, Three, if you here, want to Carrie, think in all the dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Carrie Doyle uh, made this comment and uh, hey, Carrie, glad you're with us. Uh, he said, uh, and not just rushing back to normal. And And I think what he's getting at here is that you know what, let's really think about where we are right now. This is such a wonderful opportunity for us to refocus on uh, what the mission is and not rush back into what we were doing in the past. Uh, Let's evaluate this um, and, and let's make the adjustments that we need to make so that we can get on that mission that is so unifying. I mean, can you imagine 
the, the North American church that all believed that this is God's mission for us and that we were united to be on that mission of declaring his glory to every community where we have churches. I mean, that would just be an incredible, uh, I think an incredible revival uh, would happen if, if that were to occur. Yeah, I, I would just add to that for Brian. One of the things I've seen is uh, as a church gets larger, if we want to use that, that framework, um, we add ministries to cover up the fact that we're not really raising up leaders and releasing authority. So what ends up happening is um, we say, hey, we'll just hire somebody to be over this ministry. And now that person is the paid professional over the ministry. And uh, we haven't really done a good job of raising up leaders, releasing authority. And then yeah. there your organization starts to blow up again. You may not have started out that way, but it's an easier fix than the hard work of actually making disciples and raising up leaders and helping them to raise up disciples mm. as well. So that's what we've seen, I mean, over and over again. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I mean, that's so critical for us to realize that, you know, ministry isn't restricted to some people that went to seminary. Uh, it's, it's all of our responsibility. And, uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. A couple couple of things here to, um, that I just wanted to chime in here. And then I, I want to get to uh, a few other things real fast too. Um, but one of the things I think it would be helpful to Brian to think about this conversation is to frame it uh, not just in the context of the individual's church, the, the organization's mission, uh, the mission of the church, your individual mission. But one of the things that we're trying to really think about here is movement. And movement is a whole other level above all of that. And it's the organism that works uh, coincidentally together, right? And I think when we start thinking movement, it suddenly reminds us that we're actually more about the success of everyone else than we are about our own success. And so I think this is where we get trapped. I think we get trapped in the context of the individual church location, um, our own systems and our own processes, when we forget that actually we're part of a broader movement we're part of God's movement for the entire world to reconcile all things together in him. And so that is the call. That's our, that's our role. That's our job. That's who we belong with. And so we're part of a broader, a broader movement. And so um, I, I think that when we kind of put it, when we start framing, and I think that's what really we're hoping that physiology becomes is this is the, the bedrock to how we start thinking about movement as rather than we start thinking about our own individual systems. Um, and uh, I, I think that would just maybe be helpful. I, by the way, uh, a couple of things here. Uh, Doug, you chimed in here. Uh, we got some discussion going on in the chat about The Trellis in the Vine um, by Marshall and Payne. Fantastic book. Uh, it's kind of a required seminary read, I know, for most. Um, Doug, would you like to chime in a little bit more on this? Or do you want, me, do you want to say more about it since you're here with us? Yeah, it seems to me that this is a, a great opportunity to evaluate where our churches are at to decide what really is ministry related to furthering the growth of the vine and his disciple making, growing in grace, making much of Jesus, and then stripping away everything that isn't directly involved with that. Um, When I was in Haiti um, some months ago, I asked the pastors if they were more concerned about the trellis or the vine, and all of them said, oh, of course, the vine. And then as I pushed in further and further and further to a man, they all said, now it's meetings, it's taking care of the building, it's mm. 
And so I said, look, that's no different than almost every American pastor. So I would say this is an opportunity for us as leaders in the church to essentially look at the vine, the vine work that we're doing, if at all, and make sure that when we come together again, we're making that a priority, making disciples. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Doug. Now I'm thinking too, back to what Andrew had commented on in terms of leadership. Um, and we've, we've talked about this a bit uh, more in depth on our podcast than, we, than I did in the book. But, uh, you know, it, it occurs to us in Ephesians chapter four, when Jesus gives us this, these functions in the church, if you will, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, that uh, the church, for the most part, almost since Constantine, really, uh, although there were moments when we did see more of apostolic types of movements, especially in missions, but we've really focused a lot of our attention in the leadership of the church today around the the teaching of ministry of the church, and uh, perhaps to a lesser degree, but still greater than the apostle, prophet, and evangelist, uh, the shepherd of the church. And um, and I think it's important for us to understand that, you know, I, I think Jesus had an intention uh, for the gifting of the church and uh, and for us to lead out of that gifting. And that's why, you know, I come to the conclusion in the chapter on multiplying uh, movements that we have got to focus that attention on empowering people to use those gifts. I mean, if there are people gifted in our church that, that uh, are uh, passionate about engaging culture, uh, that having this missionary apostolic gifting, boy, we've got to release them into our communities. Uh, and, and we've got to release them to equip our people in the churches uh, to do those kinds of works as well. The same for, for the prophetic uh, the ministry. And I'm not talking about foretelling. I'm, I'm talking about you know, the, the bringing of the word of God in such a powerful way that it is transformative in the lives of believers and the evangelistic ministry as well. Um, mm. uh, that to see those, you know, released, if you will, uh, into the, the body of Christ so that they can equip more saints for the works of ministry. Mm. Uh, Michael, we've got another question in here from uh, um, one of our other, uh, Josiah here. It says, uh, Michael, you mentioned uh, the importance of principles over methodology, but we often grasp for methodology. I think we find that to be true. So that resonates with my experience, yet it seems people start to learn principles through experiencing methodology. So I think he brings up a good point here. Uh, Can we internalize principles apart from experiencing them first through methodology? Or could you speak a bit more to the relationship of principle and methodology? Mm, um, yeah, such a great question. There's a bit of a tension there, right? We talk about the principles, but we're always method-driven, but the methods kind of help us learn the principles. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, you know, that's such a great question. I mean, so often um, it, we get to the point of talking about principles because we've been in a method perhaps that that doesn't seem to be working. And so it drives us back to find principles. Uh Sometimes we are in a method and and then we try to find principles that will justify that method. Um, Yeah, so that's a challenging place to to be. I always think about Warren Wiersbe. uh, Years and years ago, he said, uh, methods are many and principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. 
And that little uh, pithy uh, rhyme, I, I think, is important. Uh, principles are principles. Um, the, the danger, I think, f- that we tend to have is that um, uh, we will methodologize our principles or we will principletize our methodologies. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we get them mixed up. Uh I so often, especially in church planting movement circles, um, you hear a lot of talk about what are what are believed to be principles, uh, T for T, for example, or DMM. Uh, the, the folks will talk about these as being principles. Well, the reality is, is that those really are methods uh, to achieve a principle. But, but they really are methods. And so I think sometimes we get our methods and our principles mixed up. Um, and, uh, and the only way really I know to wrestle with those is, is to go back to scripture. Um, I, I find it difficult to say that I can identify a particular uh, methodology there. There are certainly principles. Uh, I, I might see some methodology in regards to uh, how Paul engaged the culture. But I think even in his process of engaging culture, he's really showing us some principles of how important it is for us to dialogue with people to understand them, uh, how important it is for us to observe cultural practices uh, in order to make right assessments. And then how important it is for us to do the historical study so that we really understand where people are coming from. I think it's so, funny yeah, that, that, Josiah, that's a great question. I think it's funny just because Josiah's question and Michael's answer phrased differently is exactly what Andrew was bringing up earlier. This is a form and function thing. Again, I mean, you literally yep. just, all, all we said is, is methods and principles when we were previously saying form and function. You know, we've, we're, we're mistaking the function for the form. We're mistaking form for the function. We're getting it out of whack. And instead of focusing in on what kind of the most essential, the principles and the functions, and we're swapping them with something that's lesser and uh, losing track. I don't know. I just and, thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's good. And, and again, I mean, we're reminded of the Great Commission to go and make disciples and we need to teach them to obey. And so there, there's this, a, there's a teaching aspect. There must be some sort of uh, form and function, some sort of methodology that must be involved in our practice as well. Um, but finding that balance, as Michael uh, reminded us, is, is very important. Hey, we're kind of at our uh, near our ending point here, but I'd love to just open the floor up just for uh, a final question or two. Uh, we haven't heard from Michaela at all. And Ellie, if you had another question, we want to come back to you as well, too. Uh, a lot of us other guys have gotten in a little bit, but I'd love to hear from you, too, if, if there's uh, another question or things that you guys would like just to bring out right here in our final few moments. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about, um, especially with my generation um, and looking at you know, the different aspects of the millennial generation is the effect of um, low commitment culture on a movement like this. Um, a lot of a lot of church is the typical Sunday routine. You get up, you go to church, shake some hands, sing some songs, listen to a sermon and leave. Um, and that's that's a very, a very common structured form of church. So looking at looking at that and um, the already 
structured culture of low commitment within my generation? How would we go about inspiring or empowering um, the younger generation to engage in something so high commitment? Um, because this this crosses the boundary of just Sunday. Um, this goes into a weekly, uh, not just weekly, but a lifestyle change. Um, so how how do we take what we're learning from the church and apply it to a low commitment culture in such a way that empowers them and inspires them um, to commit to something more? Raise the bar. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to be so uh, clearly just because you can say raise the bar doesn't mean that's actually going to work. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is that I believe I and we as church leaders have been off asking far too little of the people mm. who are a part of our churches. And um, we've actually instilled a culture of that low bar. And so, so God bless you, Michaela, for throwing all the millennials under the bus, <laughs> but it's not your fault because it's the church that we have helped create. And I'm like, literally I'm, I'm on that millennial bubble. So I fall either way, whoever wants to claim me, I'm yours. But um, the truth of the matter is we've stopped asking people to be serious about the things that Jesus said that we should be about. Mm. And uh, one of my friends, Lauren Niskavitz, brought this up as we were talking about ministry and things that we were doing at Neartown. And she said, I just feel that we have been doing way too much to take responsibility from people instead of reminding them of the responsibility that has been given to them in Jesus. And so raising that bar and saying, this is what Christ is asking of you. We are not doing this as a church. All we are doing is trying to make known to you what Christ is calling each of us to, and then mm -hmm. equip you and encourage you to chase after that. And so um, that's why I want to say, it's not, it's not the millennials fault and I'm not about to, to blame anybody who is in that space and say, okay, we're a low commitment culture. Um, that spans, unfortunately that spans, that's Americanism right yeah. now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so what we should really be doing is encouraging one another. And this comes through accountability. This comes with, uh, I guess what used to be shoulder to shoulder, but now I guess it's going to be zoom box to zoom box. Um, <laughs> to actually call each other to account and, and encourage one another, reminding us of the things that are true in Christ, reminding us of who we are and, and the gifts that we've been given, but then also encouraging each other, go take off, go do this thing. How can I encourage you? How can I remind you of these things? Um, I might be a little passionate, but I'm excited because <laughs> this is the stuff that we're talking about. This is mission in action instead of mission in conversation. I think, uh, Michaela, we'd love to have you on for a future podcast episode, by the way, because this would be an amazing conversation. Promoted. Seriously. Hey, I, I've, been, I've been told. <laughs> uh, I would I personally guess, listen into that, by the way. <laughs> yes. I guess my, my follow-up question to that um, kind of plays into this idea of risk um, and this idea that the American church right now, at least from my perspective, um, it's it's not risky, I guess, to be a Christian as it stand as the church stands right now. But again, what we're calling people to this idea of 
continually putting ourselves out there for the mission would bring in this level of risk that um, I, I don't think people have really experienced. Michaela, could um, I ask? Could I ask a follow-up mm-hmm. question to that? Yeah. Um, do you feel like um, that level of risk has been well modeled for you by those by the generation before you? <laughs> um, that depends on if you ask me from the context of my generation or from the context of my family. Well, um, uh, I, I'm going to assume <laughs> I know what one of those answers are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I don't. In, in my personal experience, yes, just because I've been raised by two missionary parents um, and we've, we've been given a real gift of um, being able to see what other cultures experience and being able to see um, the risk that they face just simply by even speaking the name of Jesus um, or even people assuming that their identity is in Christ. But I don't think in general... I don't think um, there's really been a communication of um, any sort of outside risk or even a communication of how lucky we really are in the U.S. to not experience such persecution that's experienced around the globe. Um, so I don't, I don't think from my own experience, um, just in talking to people in my generation, I don't think it's been clearly communicated. Um, the what is the word for it? Um, the like dire need, I guess, yeah. to to reach out with the gospel um, and how low in reality our risk really is in the mm. U.S. Um, yeah. And I think because of that, people place a lot more value on um, what they think is high risk when in reality it is low. Um, because what's, what's losing a friend compared to, um, risking your life and your family's life Mm. in that sense. Mm. Yeah. Well put Michaela. And thank you for that. And I think too, like, as you, I mean, just as you're saying, like you haven't, you have something to compare it to. Mm. Not many have that opportunity to compare it to. And I think your question is a hundred percent valid because the question is, uh, how do we? What do we do with a generation of millennials and even below that, and even younger, mm-hmm. of non-committal? And the right. question is: Is have we seen what commitment looks like when it comes to walking by faith, and um, and what it looks like to to be walking this journey? I, I would tell you, as uh, as somebody who's on the very edge of, I, I <laughs> sit on that edge of Gen X and millennial. Um, I, I'm we're just, I'm just right there. I know Cusper is somebody once called me that. I'm like, what'd you call me? Stop uh, <laughs> a Cusper. Um, and anyway, all to say is I, I, so I kind of live in these like two generational worlds a little bit. Um, I can tell you that that has been something I've been wrestling with a lot in my, as I've been aging up and been wrestling with what does real risk for the kingdom of God really look like, mm-hmm. especially in a really affluent, uh, Western context. And, uh, that is not, um, a gift necessarily that we have grown up with is what does true risk look like? I would tell you that actually what we're experiencing today in light of uh, this pandemic and COVID-19 to me is just, this is softball. Um, This is a practice run uh, for, Mm -hmm. for all that is potential, that is what is a potential. And I think that there's some real value and benefit from learning uh, to unravel oneself, to discover that 
um, to discover what that risk looks like. And so I would almost say like, Michaela, you're a challenge to us and you're a challenge to us to say, I want commitment. I want to know what it looks like. Uh, and the challenges to the older generation to say, then let us show what commitment looks like mm -hmm. um, is, is what I'm hearing from you potentially. And even what I'm hearing from me, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, going off that, sorry, my, my mind. We got a like podcast going here, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my dad. I get excited it. and it starts going. Um, but I think another, another piece that has to be shown, um, not just commitment, not just um, risk and all of that, but also the urgency. I don't, I don't feel that the urgency of the mission and the urgency behind the Great Commission, the urgency um, behind making disciples has been communicated um, as well as it probably should. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I don't want to put fault anywhere, um, but that's, that's another piece to that risk, to that commitment, is that there, there really isn't a sense of urgency um, within the American church right now from what don't, I see. Don't you think, I, and I'm, I'm in the middle of that generation. I'm, I'm 30. So I'm <laughs> like dead in the center. And uh, I mean, don't you think though that that flows, I mean, it kind of brings us full circle. It's the anthropocentric culture. Mm -hmm. And yeah. how can you really get after the great, con great commission if you're man centered, because right. this is a, this is God's mission. And so we can't both serve ourselves and serve mm -hmm. the mission of God. And so, I think that in all of this conversation, we've got to help people run after God himself. And, and that's how yeah. we raise the bar, as we've already said. But I, I think the other thing is quit laying out all of these options as if to say you're serving yourself and, mm -hmm. and lay out a clear path for people to walk down of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we just really yeah. haven't seen that in the church world and, and we've got to figure out collaboratively. I love the, you know, the idea of theology and community collaboratively. What does this look like? What are some options here to really lay out these principles to give people clear paths so they can follow Jesus and they can teach someone else how to do the same thing? Mm. Yeah, that's a great comment. Great comment. Wow, this has been fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. Boy, Matt, Andrew, I think we need to do this again. We will. Okay. <laughs> we will. We will. And, uh, and by the way, Doug asked a, a fantastic question that we're going to, uh, Doug, I, I'd love to pose that question to Michaela possibly on another opportunity, but I'm going to hold on to that one if you're all right with that. Um, and, uh, thank you for that, uh, Michaela and to everyone else really, thank you so much just for this, this great conversation. Um, uh, Brian, Andrew, Doug, Ellie, Josiah, and of course our buddy, Andrew and Michael, thank you guys so much. This has been a great yeah. conversation. And uh, a bunch I got, of people I was even, on Facebook too. Yeah, I saw some people uh, chiming in. I got a text from a friend who's watching on Facebook. He had a question as well, so we'll have to. We'll definitely do this again, Michael. We've got another one of these scheduled. I think for next month. Is that correct? We do. Yep, uh, the first Monday of June. So if anybody's got the calendar on them, right? We're a little. Uh, you think we'd be a little bit more prepared for this, right? June first. June first. First. That'd be the first Monday of the month. So uh, we'll be doing this again on June 1st. You guys can, uh, for those of you who might be listening in on um, 
uh, perhaps on uh, Facebook or, you know, a recording on this right now, uh, you can chime in, uh, you can get on our, our website at physiology.com. You can look for the book discussion and you can register, um, through our zoom account there. And, uh, we'd love to get you on board and join us. And well, thank you, Brian, plug in the book. Well done, sir. And be sure to pick up a copy of the physiology from, uh, from our, our fine publishers at William Carey publishing available now at mission books, dot org just reading it off the back and also um of course on amazon and you can find that online at our website at physiology.com and by the way uh, thanks for being a part of the physiology community of, really for all of you right now you're a part of our community we just thanks so much for joining us and make sure you're up on our on our email list um and subscribe to our podcast we'd love to continue hearing from you and dialoguing with you and we've really enjoyed this time together with you um, some of the things that we're working on behind the scenes a little bit uh, with the physiology. Um, Michael, chime in here if I'm forgetting anything. Um, but some things that we're talking about right now is uh, we've got um, some mini laboratory things that we're working on. So we're trying to create some some uh, mini labs, if you will, um, and uh, doing a little bit of like incubator work with uh, people who are rallying around the missional movement concepts, specifically with the physiology and using it as a book study to get a group of some like-minded people together. Um, so if this is something that of interest of you and you'd like to know maybe what's the next step or maybe you want to get some coaching behind the scenes with that with some others, we'd love to dialogue with you about that uh, please reach out um uh, michael what else am i forgetting uh oh my goodness what, what did, we talked about this earlier and i forgot. we did um if you're a church I'm, leader I'm, if you're a church leader uh, we'd love to uh talk to you and your team um and uh if potentially that there is a opportunity where um perhaps when we're all able to get together again or we can do it through zoom if you're interested in, in a particular master class or an opportunity for um Michael to come in and visit with you and your team. We'd love for that as well as an opportunity too, um, and uh, some other uh, things that we're cooking up. Great. We just want to be a resource, and that's the end of the day. Is a physiology just wants to be a resource to you, and so uh, we're all we're thinking about movement and uh, working towards movement, and that's what we're all about here uh, with the physiology. So thank you guys for all for joining us. This has been fun. Yeah, thanks, guys. I, I'm looking forward to continuing our interaction. Please don't hesitate to reach out to any of us. We, we would love to keep this conversation going. Agreed. We're less hidden than you think we are. <laughs> and far more accessible. Guys, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for joining us. It's so good to see you all and meet you all tonight. Uh, and have a, have a, uh, may the fourth be with you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Bye-bye.